Would you pray with me, please? Whiter than snow, yes, whiter than snow. Now wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, Father, thank You for washing us in the blood of Jesus so that we are whiter than snow. We love You. And we pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. This morning, please do not turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Wow. Yeah, you remember. Instead, would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hezekiah. Hezekiah chapter 4. Amos, Obadiah, Hezekiah chapter 4. Would you turn there with me, please? (laughs) So how many of you are trying to find Hezekiah in your Bibles? My students fall for it every year. There is no Hezekiah in the Bible. There is. He's a king, not a book. Seems like it ought to be a book. Yes? What usually follows with my students is a short lesson on how well do you know the book? I won't give you that short lesson today, although perhaps I just did. Some of you still think it's still in there and you're going to find it. Well, good luck with that. For the rest of us, we'll move along. As you know, next Sunday, Palm Sunday, our choir with all the fixins, so including soloists, everything, the whole enchilada, I guess you could call it a whole enchilada cantata, I need a rim shot. Where did, the, where did the drummer go? Our choir will present the last, or the seven last words of Christ. All kidding aside, this will be a deeply moving musical experience. They don't know when they practice, and I'm doing sermon prep at night, I'll come and listen at the doors and, and even pray a bit. And boy, what God has brewing for us next week in that cantata as we continue our preparation for Good Friday and Easter. This musical piece, using that amazing power of music, it will pull us into Jesus' very experience on the cross. Trust me, you don't want to miss this. And please, please, you will want to bring friends and maybe even a few enemies. So ask a few of them this week, will you? And then the following week, of course, is Easter, Resurrection Day. Amen? And our Scripture that day will, of course, include readings from the Gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection. The message on Easter is going to center around John 11.35. Who knows John 11.35? And we'll shout it out. Jesus wept. Very good. That's the answer to that trivia question, right? The shortest verse. Um... Now, you might think, what what an odd choice for Scripture for Easter morning. What does Jesus weeping have to do with Resurrection Day? Well, I could tell you right now, but then you'd have no reason to come for Easter. So, please come and find out what a weeping Jesus has to do with Easter. Now, I'll say again, one more time, every poll clearly states, clearly shows, proves without a doubt... People that live near you, work in the cubicle next to you, sit in the desk across the hall. They are literally, every poll says, just waiting for an invitation from you to come. They say yes this time of year. So will you please take that I know courageous step 
and simply ask someone this week, will you, to join us both for our Cantata Palm Sunday and for Easter, please. This morning, um, I am going to take a break from our series in Acts. I thought about it this week and I thought, you know, um, let's take the opportunity to help prepare us even specifically for the uh, cantata next week on Palm Sunday. I thought the choir is going to sing about the seven last words of Christ, so I thought I'd say a few things about them too. So what are the seven last words of Christ that He spoke while on the cross, and, and what do they have to do with our life and witness today? Let me start by saying that no single gospel, did you know, no single gospel records all seven. In fact, no one records more than three. Matthew and Mark record only one, the same one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that one is the only one that is repeated in more than one gospel. Luke then gives us three more in addition, and John even three more than that. I think that adds up to seven. I've listed them on the screen for you in a likely order, at least, that Jesus said them. We don't know that order for sure because they're blended through the four Gospels. So there's nothing to die over. Don't die over the order of what Jesus said things. Um, perhaps, perhaps the most significant debate is, as you can see on the screen, whether numbers 2 and 3 should be switched around. And there are even um, fewer scholars, so few I didn't even include it, but I'll tell you about it, that want to switch 6 and 7. But, but the order you see is, is one of scholarship's best guesses, at least, at the order Jesus said them. Um, allow me, please, for those listening online to at least read these into the record so they can hear. The seven last words in order that we're taking them this morning. First, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing from Luke 23. Dear woman, here is your son. Here is your mother from John 19. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise from Luke 23. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me from Matthew 27 and Mark 15. I'm thirsty from John 19. It is finished also from John 19. And finally, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit from Luke 23. Now, what I'd like to do first with us this morning is to give a very brief introduction for each saying. We don't have near the time this morning to delve into all seven as deep as I'd like. In fact, this week, at least for an idea for next year leading up to Easter, I thought maybe a seven-week series on one of the each sayings would be fun. We'll see how God leads then. But for this morning, we'll look, we'll look at a very, a very few things, at least, I think, that, that you might find interesting and, and, and that we might find helpful, especially as we go into next week. So when the choir is singing or they're cantataing these sayings, perhaps we'll be a little bit more familiar with them and can uh, you know, appreciate them all the more next week. First, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Luke gives us this first saying of Jesus from the cross. And, and in Luke, the immediate context makes it clear that, that this prayer of Jesus was offered for the Roman soldiers who crucified Him and who cast lots for His clothes, even as they're doing it. Two things quickly to highlight here. First, notice that Jesus still calls God Abba, Father, or perhaps better yet, Dad. Abba is a very intimate word for Father. 
uh, on the lips of a young child at least, Abba is Daddy. Jesus' faith and trust and belief in God remains strong despite His horrific circumstance. He's still calling Him Dad. Would our faith remain as strong when terrible things happen to us? Second, in this same breath of faith and trust and belief in His Father, Jesus prays for the forgiveness of others. The one who said the greatest commandment was to love God and love others when He was pressed immediately responds with love of God, His Father, and love of others. His love of God and others pours from Him even as His blood bursts from the wounds of the spikes being driven through Him. His first thought that day as the hammer raised, His first thought as it landed, is not for Himself. His first thought is to turn to His Father and to pray for others. And not just any others, but the guy holding the mallet. And not just, but the Romans, the Gentiles of all people. Here's the Savior who is well aware of, 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 of the fact that what He's doing that day is not only for His own people, the Jews, but also for the world. Even for His enemies. Even for those responsible for His death. And so, even for you and me. The one who taught greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, lay down his life for us. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Second, dear woman, here is your son, here is your mother. The disciple here is John. One note, you see John's humility even in how he tells the story. John refers to the women by name, but he doesn't include his own name. And he only refers to his own mother as the sister of Jesus' mother Mary. Such humility. Did you know that the Apostle John and Jesus were cousins? This surprises many. Most Christians, I think, because of the attention that we give to Christmas on the birth narratives and the Gospels, most Christians realize that John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. But many miss that, that one of Jesus' disciples, the Apostle John, is his cousin too. John's mom's name is Salome, and Salome was Mary's sister, husband of Zebedee. What are some implications of this uh, often overlooked saying. If there's one overlooked more than others, it's probably this one. How about this? How about the love and provision and tenderness that Jesus gives them and shows to his mother and shows to his cousin John, to his earthly family at least that have gathered there that day. They're losing him, Jesus, to death that day. And so He gives them each other. So thinking of others. And by all historical accounts, later in John's ministry, Mary goes with John to Ephesus. Think modern day Vegas. You've got a good picture of Ephesus. And who can say the incredible influence and blessing that Mary continued to have in this young man John's life, her nephew? Not to mention the lives of, of all the Christians in the church at Ephesus that would come and go and experience Mary's hospitality and to get to hear the story from her directly of what happened with the shepherds and the wise men so many years ago.
Dear woman, here is your son, here is your mother. Third, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that Luke, of all the Gospels, gives us this detailed exchange between Jesus and the criminals being crucified with Him. Luke is relentlessly interested in showing us Jesus' love for the outcasts. And as Luke writes, I'm sure, even as he's dying, Luke can't wait to tell us. Even as he's dying, Jesus saves a criminal hanging on a cross next to him. So God and other focused, isn't he? And the theological picture we have here is staggering. For, for we too, in the words of the criminal that Jesus saved that day, we too, absent Jesus on the cross, are under the same sentence. The sentence of death for sin. Absent Jesus on the cross, justice demands we be punished. Absent Jesus on the cross, we too deserve death because of our sin. And the criminal, all of us in that criminal are there, aren't we? That criminal experiencing the repentance and the hope that this man next to him, Jesus, represents. That criminal recognizes his own sin and that he deserves death for it. But at the same time turns and sees the one. He also sees that Jesus has done nothing wrong. In other words, Jesus' death is not because of his own sin, but because of ours. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Fourth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These last four of Jesus' sayings, beginning with this one, probably happen in rapid succession. You say, how do we know that? Well, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that the ninth hour, about three in the afternoon, is the time for both the fourth and the final saying. And so, those four likely ran together, maybe in one breath, maybe minutes apart. These four likely ran together. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm thirsty. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You'll note uh, some standing nearby think he's calling out to Elijah. Why? Perhaps because the Aramaic or the Hebrew Eloi or Eli, my God, it sounds like Elijah's name. And or perhaps because Elijah was commonly looked to by the Jews as a key messenger of God's salvation. I think um, to me, and I offer to you this morning, this cry of Jesus especially, this one that in, uh, is inserted, is included in the middle of the seven, this one especially, I think, reveals the depth of his suffering, doesn't it? For there is, is no pain, there is no suffering so great that, that comes even close to being completely forsaken by God as Jesus was that day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fifth, I am thirsty. Many of you who are here with us when we looked at this in sermon form, John chapter 7, remember? Jesus tells us, John tells us earlier that Jesus shouted one day in the temple courts that He, Jesus Himself, is living water. Remember? I am mine, Chaim. I'm living water, he yelled. And so camp with me a bit this morning on the amazing contradiction on the cross. 
camp with me on the impossibility of water itself being thirsty. Living water is thirsty? Jesus' humanity is certainly being stressed here. He's thirsty. But also emphasized here again, I think, is the depth of His suffering. All that He had, all that He was and is, every last drop poured out and given to us. So much so, that living water Himself, God Himself, can you fathom, became thirsty so that we would never be thirsty again. I'm thirsty. Sixth, it is finished. In the original Greek text, one single word, tetelestai. In Hebrew, tam vinishlam. There are many interpretations of what Jesus meant by this, everywhere from the very specific, His own life indeed was about to be finished, to the very universal, His mission to, to open the way for reconciliation with God was indeed finished. The perfect tense, those of you who are into grammar, the perfect, all four of you, the, the perfect tense, the perfect tense of that Greek verb, tetelestai, if we put it into a very literal English translation, it would read like this. It has been and still is finished. Emphasizing, perhaps, that, that ultimately it's always been about God and that God from the beginning had accomplished our salvation and proves it that day on the cross. Tetelestai. Tam vinishlam. It has been and still is finished. It is finished. Seventh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. For his very last word. Did you know that Jesus prays a bedtime prayer that history suggests was taught by many a good Jewish mother to her children? Jesus turns to a prayer that that Mary may have taught him kneeling at his bedside with him when Jesus was two years old. Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm wondering, does that bedtime prayer sound at all familiar? Does that echo at all in, in your mind and experience? How many of you have prayed as a child? How many of you today have, have taught a brother, a sister, a son or a daughter, a grandson or a granddaughter? How many of you have taught the little ones in your life to pray, and now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Do you know that many suggest at least that that famous bedtime prayer has its roots in that same Jewish bedtime prayer Mary might have taught Jesus? Abba, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. All right, those are a very few things at least uh, that I hope enriches your understanding, our understanding of the last seven sayings of Jesus while He hung dying on the cross. What I'd like to do next this morning is to look at something with you that in my experience, this connection, at least, is not very well known. To introduce it, 
I need to first teach you about a common Jewish method of prayer. Common historians tell us as best as they can guess during Jesus' day. And still, my Jewish friends tell me, common today in some Jewish circles. Now, some call this method or style of prayer praying Scripture or praying the text. What is praying Scripture? Praying Scripture is when you pick or God puts on your heart to pick a certain passage in the Bible. And you use that passage, you quote it, you recite it word for word as your personal prayer to God. Think of it. One example. Let's say something fantastic happens in your life. Okay? I don't know, your first child is born. He proposes. She accepts. You ace the final exam in biochemistry. You make the winning shot. You hit a home run. You score the winning goal. Ladies, you find that perfect Easter dress 85% off at Dillard's. Yeah, more reaction over any of these, that one than any of these. <laughs> Choir, your Palm Sunday rehearsal for the evening is finally finished for the night. The surgery is a success. I don't know anything, however great, however small, anything that stirs in you that, that sense of joy or gladness or just makes you feel good to be alive. Well, as a result, if if you're a prayer of Scripture, you might turn in prayer to God during those good times. I hope you do. And if you're a prayer of Scripture, your prayer might go like this. Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who has made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. For the Lord is good and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Amen. Ah, there's power in them praying the text. You know, the more I thought about it this week, the more I felt like praying Scripture as a lost art. And you know, as wonderful as our own words are, as we fumble along using our words in our prayer, and certainly you could do that, but as wonderful as what we have to say to God, maybe we can also pray God's own words back to Him out of the context of our lives once in a while. Praying Scripture. A second part to praying Scripture. And this part is also common among Jewish circles both in Jesus' day and today, just like the first, is that while praying Scripture, when something in that passage that you are quoting and praying word for word especially hits close to you, when something in that verse suddenly seems to go click, it fits with what's going on specifically in your life, that day, that moment, that month, whatever. The Holy Spirit brings to your mind as you're reciting and praying the text, If the Holy Spirit puts on your heart something specific in your life, then right there, in the middle of praying that Scripture, you break out of the text, at least in a word-for-word recitation, and you add or insert or include your own prayer in your own words for a while, praying about that specific circumstance. Does this make sense? Okay, three people it makes sense, so I'll go on. Now, when you're finished with that, you know, your own words, then you go back into the text and you finish. And you keep praying along in the Scripture 
And if Holy Spirit hits you again with the next line or four verses later, you break out and talk about the personal thing going on in your life. And you do that until the passage is done. Now, to give you an example of this, working in real life, okay, I just explained it to you in words. Let me try to show you experientially for all you experiential folks. I'm going to need you. You get to be the illustration for yourself this morning. Aren't you excited? Okay, six of you are. That's good. Now, this is going to stretch some of you beyond your comfort zone. That's okay. We need to be stretched sometimes beyond our comfort zones. Amen? Seven of you said amen. At least I know I need to be stretched. So I invite you to stretch this morning a bit. You don't have to, but it's an invitation I extend, and I'd encourage you to give it a try. So let's pray Psalm 23 together. Okay? Here's how it's going to work. I will read a part of Psalm 23, and then I will pause, and I'll allow you to pray right where you are, all at once, out loud, (laughs) whatever it is that the Holy Spirit puts on your mind to to pray related to that text. And then you go for as... I can't let you go as long as as you... We'll be here all day. But you go for a while, and, and when I feel it's time to move on, I will then go to the next line in Psalm 23... I'll pause, and then you can pray out of your own life experience over that, and we'll do that and work our way through Psalm 23 until we reach the end of the psalm. Are you ready? This is so exciting, isn't it? Okay. Psalm 23. Let's pray. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Isn't that fun? It's pretty cool. I know you have to deal with, if you're like me, it's like the part of the stretch is, you know, it's the person next to me listening to my prayer, and is my prayer any good? See what the devil does to keep us quiet? Or, you know, the guy behind you or woman behind you, they're praying so loud I can't even think. You know? You just... Community's hard. That's praying Scripture, and it's something Jews in Jesus' day did all the time. Now, here's what I said before that not many, in my experience at least, have heard of before. And it's a possible, if not probable, in my mind, a connection. Um, to the seven last words of Jesus. I'll give it to you in the form of a question, something Jesus loved to do. Have you ever noticed he often teaches by asking questions? Here's my question. My question is this. Is Jesus praying Scripture while He is on the cross? you ever thought of that? Maybe not, if you've never heard of praying Scripture before, but is He praying Scripture while He's on the cross? Now, before you answer... Consider this. Any good Jew will tell you, and many have told me, that if they are dying, or if they know death is imminent, if they know their death seems certain, if they find themselves on a plane and that thing's going down, if that monitor on the hospital bed is slowly slowing down as it beats in the cadence to their heart, if they know they're about to die, any good Jew will tell you that if possible at least, they want to die with two passages of Scripture in particular on their lips. If possible, they want to die while reciting two passages in particular. The first is Shema from Deuteronomy and Numbers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And the second that they hoped to recite when death is near is Psalm 22. Sometimes it's even called the death psalm for this reason. So, is Jesus praying the death psalm? Is Jesus praying Psalm 22 while He is on the cross? He certainly knew death was near, yes? So as any good Jew would in Jesus' day who loved the Lord and loved... Is He praying Psalm 22? In a second, I'm going to read Psalm 22. In fact, I'm going to pray Psalm 22 as Jesus might have prayed it that day on the cross, as we consider, is He praying it? Now, while I'm reading the psalm, I'll include, again on the screen, the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. It's coming. There it is. So, 
when in the context of Psalm 22 as I read it, I'll include the seven last words of Jesus when perhaps Jesus also experienced that and broke out and maybe said one of his seven last words. Kind of like what we just did with Psalm 23. Does that make sense? I, I think it will as we get into the psalm. Okay? Here's Psalm 22. Let's pray. The first verse is not a stretch at all. Some of you will be shocked. Uh, you will be when you hear word for word what Psalm 22 verse 1 is. This is Psalm 22 verse 1. Word for word. I'm not paraphrasing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What an amazing coincidence. Not. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not listen. You do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads and saying, He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Mary, Mom, dear woman, here is your son. John, here is your mother. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help me. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax, it's melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. I'm thirsty! Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Oh, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But You, O Lord, 
Be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of these dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare Your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise You. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor Him. Revere Him, all you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden His face from Him, but has listened to His cry for help. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with Me in paradise. From you comes the theme of My praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill My vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise Him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before Him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. And He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before Him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve Him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. For He has done it. It is finished. Amen? Does Jesus pray Psalm 22 that day on the cross? Remarkable possibility, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how that fits? Isn't it incredible that so much of what David experienced, David wrote Psalm 22, so much of what, of what David experienced himself and then wrote about in Psalm 22, 1,000 years, a millennia before Jesus, isn't it amazing how it fits so closely with Jesus' own experience on the cross and His seven sayings? What difference does this make for us today? One, we may have additional insight into Jesus' full prayer that day on the cross, or, or at least what was on His heart and mind, as He certainly knew Psalm 22 by heart, rather than just the seven sayings recorded in the Gospel. Isn't it something to think of that entire psalm on Jesus' heart and mind that day? Two, we can appreciate, again, how the so-called Old Testament isn't so old after all. How the Old and the New Testaments are one testament, one witness, one story. They're both bound inextricably together. One unbroken Word of God. And three, can we see the importance of, as God tells us in Deuteronomy 11, fixing God's Word in our hearts? Say, what do you mean? Consider how even though God Himself had turned His face away from His only begotten Son, even though Jesus had been utterly, utterly forsaken by God to become sin, as we heard about earlier, so that we, even though God turned His face away, God's words were fixed in Jesus' heart. And they became a great source of encouragement to Him. You think? God's word may God's word may have very well been what kept him there on that way to his death. 
He had God's Word in his heart. And it was right there when he needed it to get him through. I would hope we too would hide God's Word in our hearts, study it, know it, memorize it, so that no matter the circumstances we go through, no matter the pain and suffering we bear, God's very Word is right there in our hearts, encouraging us, shaping us, guiding us, even becoming us as we act it out, allowing us to say along with Job, no matter what happens, though He slay me, yet will I hope in God. So hide God's Word in your hearts, will you? Say it takes a lot of time. Well, can you afford not to take that time, my friends? P.S. And, and, and we'll close with this. Many of you know. Many of you know because you were keeping track as we went through Psalm 22. And I referred one by one to Jesus' last sayings, right? Many of you noticed that I missed one, didn't you? And see how you are? And you're sitting there thinking, ah, after the sermon, you're going to run up there with glee. And you're going to say, hey, Pastor Todd, what about the last one? I know how you are. Well, I'm so glad you asked. For the last one, Jesus quotes Psalm 31, verse 5. Still, with the last bit of air that comes out of his lungs, praying God's words, this very last and dying breath. Check out the first line of Psalm 31, verse 5. Another Psalm of David. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Isn't the Word of God amazing? Isn't Jesus amazing? And since He is the Word of God, that's redundant. You'll get that later on your way home. And now look at the very next line in that same verse. It completes the thought. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. And with His very last breath... The God-man who had done nothing wrong. The one who had never sinned in his life. The one of everyone who has ever lived or ever will who did not deserve to die. The one who had every right and every ability to literally explode off of that cross in power and in might and lay waste to everyone who had done this to him, including you and me. That one instead was still praising and still trusting in his Father who had abandoned Him for our sake. With His dying breath, after desperately for those six hours on the cross, desperately seeking the union and direct line and support and communion with His Father, in vain for those six hours, for the first time in His life, it was nowhere to be found, utterly abandoned by God when He had done nothing to deserve it. And yet, still He trusts in God, Still, he pleads with God to accept his spirit. And still he trusts God will redeem him, even when left entirely alone. Even as death reached for him. Even as he stared into the abyss, into that gaping maw of hell. Even as the devil and his armies reached to take hold of him. Even as he stared death itself in the eye. And at any minute, a moment, a mere flick of his will... And he turns away and he saves his own life. But no, the devil made the great mistake of playing chicken with the Son of God that day. Even he stares death straight in the eye and God doesn't blink. Instead he says, come here, I got something for you. He stares death straight in the eye. And the God of the universe, the God of the universe leans into death 
looking it right in the eye and lets it take him so he could destroy it once and for all. <laughs> Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, wouldst die for me. Amen? I mean, oh my goodness! Literally, oh my God! How did you do it? How did you do it? How did you ever let Father in Heaven, how did you ever let the Darling of Heaven die for me? I am so not worth His life. And you, more than anybody, know this. And yet, in Heaven's eyes, as they look at us and don't blink either with love and encouragement. Heaven's eyes and your eyes, you say that I am worth it. Oh, my Father. Oh, my King. Oh, my God. I will serve you. I will serve you. Pick me. Pick me. What can I do for you? Pick me. I will serve that God until the day I die. So help me, God. And Jesus dies trusting in God. And let me ask you this morning, did God honor that trust? Did God indeed ultimately save Him and restore Him to the place where His name is above every name and where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? I won't make you wait for Easter till the answer. You know it already. Did God honor that trust? Did He honor that commitment? Did He honor Jesus' obedience? Did He honor Jesus' love of God and others? Did God honor the One who laid down His life for His friends? Did God come through in the end? You bet your life He did! And better yet, don't just bet your life. You bet your soul on it. God came through for Jesus because of what Jesus did. And because of what Jesus did for all who are found in His name, God will come through for you. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we often live such timid lives when it comes to expressing and showing and doing Your love as we live our lives. Father, what reason do we have to be timid? For Your very power expressed in Your Son's sacrifice stared death in the face and defeated it. It's gone. It can't hurt us again. In fact, what was the worst case scenario, death, turns into this beautiful golden gateway that leads us in that final step for full communion with You. You did that with death. And how can we be so timid? Father, forgive us for being even so timid to walk across the street and knock on a door or see someone taking out their garbage. How can we be so timid, Father? How can we lack the courage to say, Hey, Amy, how'd you like to come to church on Palm Sunday and Easter? Would you please give us the guts to do that? It's not that it's magical coming to church, but whatever it is, Father, the, the courage to reach out in Your name and Your love to people. 
And we pray, Father, that even now, wherever they are, people that don't have plans for Palm Sunday, don't have plans for Easter, maybe don't even know what a church is, that because someone in here has the guts to ask them, would you come? Would you come? Would you come? That you would put right now, you would prepare them right now to say, oh, yeah, I'd like to come. And whatever it is, whether the music draws them, whether the message draws them, whatever it is, Father, use it that we can love on them and they can experience you and your word here. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, oh, Father, we pray for it. Find you and put their lives and their commitment into following and trusting you. Would you do that, Father, please? Father, we love you. We praise your name and your name alone. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made in giving your son. And thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice you made in giving of yourself. And thank you, dear Holy Spirit, for the sacrifice you make daily, moment by moment, in living and abiding and dwelling in us to help and encourage and guide. Thank you, Father, for being the God who serves and every day lays down his life for us. And may we respond in the joy of service and giving and all we've got for all the time that we've got left, whether it's a second or a hundred years, Father. So help us, God. Will you help us, Father? It's in the matchless, powerful name of Jesus Christ, the only Lord and Messiah that all God's people say. Amen. Thank you and praise God. And please... I may have set a record going over time, although I still think it's the first sermon I ever gave you. I got close to it. Please run down, rescue the volunteer workers from your kids. They ran out of vanilla wafers and graham crackers about 15 minutes ago. Give them a special blessing today and thank them for their time and service. Will you do that seriously? Praise God. Love you guys. Have a great week.